So this message that I have for us today uh, is typically one that gets talked about around Christmas. As we're going through the book of Luke, what we know is that uh, parts of Luke chapter 1 and into Luke chapter 2, we, we have our Christmas narrative. But what's really important to being biblically accurate is that they didn't have Christmas. And so this isn't a Christmas story. This is a birth story. And, and it's important for us to recognize it that way. So if you turn with me to Luke chapter 1, we're going to be walking through verses 5 to 25. Now, I know that's a big chunk of Scripture, um, but, it, but it's a really important story, and, it, and it's, it's quite an encouraging story. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 to 25. And um, if you don't know where the Gospel of Luke is in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. People worked hard to put it there. Please use it. And, uh, and so when you find Luke chapter 1, verse 5 to 25 is where our study is going to be, but we're going to be reading verses 5 and 6 here for our time together. So, verse 5 and 6, here's what it says. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So this, this is the priestly clan, both descended from the priestly clan. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the commandments and decrees blamelessly. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that as we look into your word, as we see what messages it is that we need to understand and, and, and come to a place of, of living into through the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Lord, that, um, that we would be blessed by this. And so, Lord, would, you, would we have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you today. In your name I pray. Amen. So, chapter 1 of Luke is all about context. All about context. It, it, it's all framing up the story that is, that is coming. And, and I have to tell you, I'm a guy who loves history. I frequently watch history YouTube videos or documentaries of historical context. I love learning about cultures and society and social, uh, sociology and things. But there are stories um, that we have that begin with offering a context that helps us to understand what comes next. And we are a people who are somewhat familiar with those things. It's part of our narratives that we have in life, the, the epic stories that we like to hear about, even within the fiction uh, genre. So here's what I mean. Let me read this to you. Tell me if this sounds familiar as a context that's offered to give us the framework for the rest of the story. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from hidden base have won the first victory against the evil galactic empire. What am I talking about? Well, I mean, we're obviously talking about Star Wars, right? And so for all those that are into Star Wars, you know, you're kind of geeking out like I am. And, but, we, but we know that, that actually, if you think about it, and if you go back and you actually look at it, the start of every single Star Wars movie has this, you could say an epilogue. It's something that gives us context so that the rest of the story makes sense. It builds a framework for us. And so Luke chapter 1 does that. Like, so before we get to the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, we get like 80 verses in chapter 1 that give us this context and backstory that lead up to the birth of Jesus. 
And so this is important. Luke sets the beginning of the narrative. It says it uh, starts essentially with here with the King Herod's reign in Judea. He's actually known as Herod the Great. And he wasn't really great, like, ethically or morally. He was kind of a vile person. Um, but many grand buildings and programs that he initiated put Israel on the map in the minds of the ancient Roman world. And Luke begins his gospel with the story of answered prayer. So we get the context in terms of who he's writing to and, and, and the um, quality of the work that he's putting together in verses 1 through 5. In verses 6, or verses 1 to 4, and in verses 5 to 25, we, we have sort of the, the timeline in terms of when is this taking place? Well, it's during the reign of King Herod the Great. Okay, so we have an idea as to when it was written. And, and those things are important. But I think what's more important um, in terms of an emphasis is that the story begins with answered prayer. You have people here who are disappointed, yet faithful. So we've got the story of a guy by the name of Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Uh, they're righteous. It, it, the scripture tells us here in verse 6 that they were walking blamelessly in all the commands and the decrees of the Lord. And so they were walking blamelessly. Now the idea of walking blamelessly is the notion that they were following faithfully all the things that the Lord was calling them into uh, and doing their absolute utmost to be able to do so. And so these were people who were faithful to the Lord. They, they were uh, about the things of God and, and, and they were of the priestly line. And so then there were responsibilities that came along for Zechariah as it related to that. But they were also well advanced in their years. They were old. And they were childless. So tell me, can you think of another story where there's this couple, they're old, they're childless, they're desperate to, to want to have a, a child. There's, um, there's the bride, like the wife who is barren. She's unable to have children. Does this sound like anybody to you? It's a familiar motif that you find within the scriptures, actually. And so they're, they're well in advance in their years. They've been faithful to God. They, they're childless. They're unable to have a child. And so you add to that disappointment another layer in Elizabeth's day. And I mean, even to some extent today. But it's the idea of disgrace is the way that Elizabeth describes it. Being barren was almost always blamed on the woman and was legitimate grounds actually for divorce. Uh, so for a woman to be barren, the assumption within Jewish society was that there was some kind of sin going on in her life that removed the potential of God's blessing in her life and, and the chief ways that God would bless a woman in those days, and that's the understanding, was through children. So if you weren't able to have children, you weren't blessed by God and you weren't blessed by God because there was sin in your life. A popular religious law, thought actually went something like this. God blesses the righteous. The greatest blessing is children. If you are childless, there must be something wrong with you on the levels that only God alone can see. So they may have looked blameless on the outside, but on the inside, the part that only God could see, the assumption was that there was something wrong. And, and it wasn't an uncommon practice to ask that kind of a question. The disciples came to Jesus one day and, uh, and, and they were talking about this person who was born blind. And they asked, like, who sinned, the mother or the father, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, well, well, neither. Like, this, 
this is done and we're here today so that God would be glorified. And so it's not the idea that, that, that our sin somehow uh, has a detrimental impact physically on somebody else all the time. But I want you to notice that God used infertile women to bring about great things that glorified him throughout Israel's history. You have Sarah, right? So we just talked about that. Do you remember I was telling you, do you remember of an old couple who were barren and you know, that kind of thing? So Sarah was Abraham's wife and barren, unable to produce children, felt it was a disgrace in her life because that was the picture that women had. Uh, like you were, you were a disgraced woman if you were unable to have children because that's often where the value came from, the ability to produce sons specifically. And so Sarah produces Isaac, which is the beginning of the fulfillment of being a great nation. Rebecca produces Joseph, who ends up being the savior of Israel in the time of famine under Pharaoh, where Joseph ended up being the second in command under Pharaoh and, and taking care of all of Egypt. And, and this is where Jacob and uh, Joseph's brothers ended up moving to Egypt. And of course, that ultimately began the 400-year uh, enslavement. You have Manoah's wife, whose name we're not even given in the story. But we have Manoah's wife who produces Samson. And so she was certainly an another person who was unable to have kids. And, and so you, you had Samson being produced with this Nazarite vow, right? No cutting of his head, um, no shaving of the beard, no uh, like consecrated to the Lord, no wine, that kind of thing. That was for Samson. Uh, and you have Hannah, who's often talked about as a woman of faith and, and, and even difficulty. And if you want to learn more about Hannah and her journey, you can look a few months back on our YouTube channel to check out our message uh, on Hannah in the series called uh, Strong Women of the Bible. But Hannah produced Samuel, who was God's prophet to the nation. And he was a judge over Israel as well. And so God frequently, actually, in terms of the significant people, or rather, he frequently used infertile women to produce these men of God that did significant things in the kingdom, significant things for Israel. Now, admittedly, not all of them were great all the time. Certainly, Samuel was not a picture of moral, you know, virtue. But he was used by God in powerful ways and conquered the Philistines in doing so. So I imagine that for Elizabeth, that could have been somewhat of a comfort. And she found herself at the age of a grandparent without a family that she had dreamed of. And the priesthood for Zechariah, if we turn our attention over to him, a priesthood for Zechariah was a matter of hereditary. It, it, it was something that he didn't necessarily aspire to. It's something that he was born into. So we learn that he is this priest. He was a priest because his father and his grandfather were priests. His wife's relatives were priests as well. And so when they had a family gathering, when all the men were gathering around and doing, you know, like women on one side, men on the other, and they having the Schnetzia conference over there, like the men were all priests. He was born into it. Nobody asked him necessarily whether or not he wanted to be. He was a priest. Now, at this time in history, there was believed to be around 18,000 priests in Israel, of which Zechariah was one of them. And 
So to divide up, so yeah, let's think about this, right? Like so there's 18,000 priests, there's only one temple. And so to do, get all the temple work done, what they did was they divided the priests up into like 24 divisions. And then each division needed to serve twice a year at the temple to do the, the temple duties. And then they were also called upon during high times, like festivals and that sort of idea to be able to come when there was a larger body of people that were coming into Jerusalem. And so Zechariah and his relatives would travel to Jerusalem, devoting themselves to their duties. So there's this one time in Jerusalem, there were many jobs to be done. Sorry, what? Uh, once in Jerusalem, there were many jo uh, jobs to be done, all overseen by the high priest and his, um, his system of governance, you could say his political machine. Some jobs were pretty lowly and mundane. Other jobs had more prestige. And the one that had the most prestige, only a single priest was selected to do this. And, and they did so by casting of lots. This is the way it's described here in the narrative. If we read, uh, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. And then it says in verse eight, once when Zechariah Zechariah's division, right? So that's one of the divisions uh, that were there to serve twice a year, and then on the big festival days. Division was on duty. He was, uh, let's see here, so on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot. That's the selection of like pen and drawing straws idea. Chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This is significant. A single priest was selected daily by law to offer incense at the hour of prayer. And this is taken from Exodus chapter 30, verse 7 to 8, where it says, Aaron must burn. So Aaron was the first high priest over Israel. He was the, the, all the priestly line derives from Aaron. Aaron was a Levite, so the Levites could be priests. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight, so incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. And so the whole notion behind it is that incense is gonna be burnt and it's this picture, this imagery of being burnt all day. All day, the incense is going up to the Lord. And so the faithful would gather at the time of prayer in the temple courts. The incense was burned during this time of prayer and it was representative of the prayers going up to the Lord. A priest that was chosen representing all the people would enter the holy place and burn the fragrant blend of spices prescribed in the law of Moses. As the smoke of the incense would rise up to heaven, the indication of course at that point is so did the prayers of the people. And once you, had to, once you had the opportunity to do this duty, your name was never included again in the casting of the lots. It was a once-in-a-lifetime event. Some priests even went their entire lives without having the opportunity to burn incense at the altar. And so as Zechariah prayed, he suddenly realizes that he's not alone. It goes on here. It says, One Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. 
So this is the, the assembled time of prayer. People were gathered to pray at temple. The incense was going to be burnt as the, that uh, fragrance, that aroma to the Lord of the, of the prayers of the people. And it's also important to note that the formula, the recipe for this incense, this incense was not allowed to be used for any other purpose than this. Only this recipe was allowed to be used for the prayer altar, the incense altar, uh, and it couldn't be used for anything else, and no other type of incense was allowed to be used for this purpose. So this was the, the incense altar, the prayers going up, people would gather together outside. And then in verse 11 it says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So Zechariah prays, Zechariah suddenly realizes he's not alone. The angel appeared at the right side of the altar in incense. And, and it just, you know, it makes you wonder. Like angels have to be this incredibly fearful thing for people to encounter because over and over and over again, you hear the angel's almost first words be, do not be afraid. Like I want you to picture an angel suddenly showing up when you're obviously least expecting it, which would be like, you know, anytime. But let's say you're by yourself, you're, you're praying, and all of a sudden there's this angel there. Imagine how afraid you would be. And, and I would suspect that part of the reason is that we've not really encountered angels in that way. Right? And not a lot of us can say, I would say very few of us are able to say that an angel appeared to them and, and as a representation of a message from the Lord to them to proclaim something incredible and that we would not be afraid like i suspect that i would be kind of choked up if uh, if an angel appeared but they say do not be afraid and the angel later identified himself as gabriel and he announces to zechariah that his prayer had been heard and it goes on to provide zechariah with quite a bit of information regarding the events that are going to follow for zechariah's son he says here all right, so then uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you were to call him John. And he will bear, be a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit from Sorry, he, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. Think about that. Even before he's born, filled with the Holy Spirit. That gives you an indication, actually, where God believes that life starts. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many people... To, of Israel to the Lord their God and will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn hearts of parents to their children and disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready the people prepared for the Lord and so what we learn in in this encounter in this angel suddenly appearing not only is he afraid he's comforted by the angel says hey man like don't be afraid your prayers have been answered and then he's given this information that is incredible. He says, look, your wife Elizabeth, she's going to bear you a son. You're going to call him John. It's going to cause people or you guys to have some joy and gladness. It's going to cause people around you to rejoice at his birth. He's going to be great before the Lord, uh, but, but don't let him drink any wine and, and, and 
make sure that there's no strong drink in his life at all for his entire life because he is to be consecrated to the Lord, set apart for the Lord, dedicated, devoted to the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He will turn many of Israel back to God. He will go before the Messiah in the power of the spirit of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers and parents to their children. He will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Think about that for a second. That's a lot of information. Like, it's... it's it's pregnancy news, it's, it's the birth announcements, the naming, the upbringing, the career, the results, all rolled into one. Like imagine that. For any of you who are parents out there, or maybe you're pregnant and, and, you're, and you're waiting for the birth of your child, imagine the kind of information that you're thinking about even right now. Like I, I, my kids are, are in that sort of that, that young adult age and I'm thinking about hey, what's their life gonna look like down the road? And what, Zechariah gets here is the picture of John's life. It's exactly the kind of information about future events that I wish God would give me. And more often than not, he says, trust me. Zechariah's response to this, um, I imagine he's overwhelmed. I imagine he's overwhelmed. So Zachariah's response is, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years, right? This is the language, right? Zechariah, verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? That's a doubt statement. How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. And so I want you to picture what's going on here. Something incredibly abnormal is taking place. Zechariah is fulfilling his responsibilities. He's chosen by a lot to go and burn uh, the incense and the altar of incense to represent the prayers of the people going up. The people all know he's in there. He's there as a representative of the people. They're outside praying. All this kind of stuff is taking place. And then while in there, while performing his duties, while praying, an angel of the Lord appears. And when the angel shows up, he says to him, hey, don't be afraid, because he was afraid. Like, this is an abnormal interaction. So I want us to understand that this is critical, okay? This is abnormal. You could say this is supernatural because it's not the kind of thing that normally happens. And so in this supernatural thing where this supernatural being is communicating this future truth to Zechariah, Zechariah asks a very natural question. And it's almost as if he's wanting a sign from the sign. Like the angel comes. This doesn't happen. And, 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 and like in, in everyday life. And so when it does happen, Zechariah reasonably, I think it should say that, that we would understand that whatever comes next and whatever trust we need to have needs to be in the supernatural that is currently taking place. But Zechariah asks a very natural question in a supernatural experience, and Gabriel's not too thrilled. Like, he's not amused. He says, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. So what does he do here? He says, hey man, 
Listen, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and God sent me to come and give you this good news. And so what he's doing there is he's attempting to bring credibility and authority of the message and of his existence in being there to Zechariah so that Zechariah will be able to have confidence in what's taking place. Did you ever have one of those moments when maybe your parent or teacher is getting ready to yell at you and then you see a little twinkle in their eye and you know that what's about to come next is worse than them yelling at you? I think that's kind of what's taking place here in a moment. In that moment, you thought, or they thought, of something better to do to you. And the angel took a look at Zechariah and he says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you, to tell you this good news. And listen, so here, here's what he does. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until this day happens. Because you did not believe my words, which come which will come true at their appointed time. And then immediately what takes place is that Zechariah is literally dumbstruck. He's literally unable to speak. It actually says here for us, uh, me, uh, yeah, that the angel says to him, you do not believe my words, which will come true in their appointed time, but you will be silent until that time comes about. And so from the perspective of those praying outside the courts, the incense offering was taking a lot longer than they were supposed to take. It actually says in verse 21, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. Like, you ever do that? You ever, somebody go, and they're supposed to do something for you, and, and whatever it is, maybe you're leaving to go somewhere, and somebody forgot something behind in the house, you're sitting in the vehicle with everybody else, they go inside, you know that it shouldn't take long for them to grab their wallets or sunglasses or whatever it is that they're grabbing, and, and so it shouldn't take too long, but for whatever reason, it's taking longer than expected. What kind of questions come to mind? What's taking so long? Where are they? Did something happen? And one of the things you have to consider is that with Zechariah being as old as he was, some people were probably wondering, is he physically okay? And we don't know that for sure, but they may have been wondering, like, why is he taking so long? Zechariah eventually er emerges, and he's unable to speak. Right? He's unable to speak. It actually says here, when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them. This is like the ultimate form of charades. He kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. They recognized that he had seen a sign from the Lord. Now, this is significant, right? Because what happens there then is like there's a buzz that takes place. Right? Like people are wondering, oh, like he took so long. And, and, and from the signs that he's offering us and his inability to speak, he's obviously had something from the Lord in this, but they may not know exactly what it was at that point yet. And so we keep reading. And it says here, when his time of service was completed, which was about a week long, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So I, all I can say to this is that like, I'm not 100% sure as to why Elizabeth hid away for five months. 
There's a number of reasons that come up. And, and I think the further study on this could maybe be done, but honestly, it would take a while to try and find the information if it's even available. So I'm not 100% sure. One of the reasons that's been suggested is that um, because she was so far along in age that she had her own issues to work through and, and wanted to wait to see if whether or not the pregnancy was in fact actually true before she would expose herself to everybody else in, in terms of being able to see, the, you know, like the baby bump. So that she hid herself away. That's one of the reasons things that people suggest. Some suggest that she was spending her time meditating upon the goodness of God. Here's what I can tell you. It seems to me that it's reasonable to suggest that she did spend time thanking the Lord for the goodness. It seems to me that it's reasonable to suggest that she dedicated herself to the Lord in some fashion and hid herself away um, so as to make sure that there was confirmation of her pregnancy. I mean, these are the natural thinking. Um, there's some indication that it might have something to do with the Nazarite vow, but we need to research that a little bit further. And I mean, certainly didn't have time for that. But we don't 100% know why, she, why it was five months. What we do know is that Luke starts his gospel message in terms of the meat of it, with a story. So why did he do that? Well, I think first it's because it's happened and it was noteworthy. Recording this story helps explain the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. Like not a lot of people think about this, but John the Baptist was about six months older than Jesus, roughly, and they were cousins. And not a lot of people think about that very much, but it's important for us to understand this, the birth of John the Baptist, the story of how John the Baptist came into, into being, and his relationship to Jesus. John was hugely famous in his day. Multitudes came out in the wilderness and responded to his message by being baptized. And his message was a message of repentance. The common people accepted him, and the religious elite rejected him. His was a grassroots revival. So the first thing would be because it happened and it was noteworthy. The second reason that this is that this story shows that the New Testament is not birthed out of just, or rather that the New Testament is birthed out of a faithfulness to the Old Testament. The birth of Jesus is promised, planned, and prepared by God out, uh, by God out of his faithfulness to Israel. The faithfulness to Israel, uh, or the faithful of Israel were made ready for the coming of their Messiah. It was people like Zechariah, it was, uh, and Elizabeth, Simon, and, or Simeon and Anna, who were the high like priest and the, and the prophetess, or the prophet and the prophetess that ended up um, being, having Jesus brought to them on the eighth day. The people who came out to hear John the Baptist, that were the ones to receive the good news of Jesus. And this speaks of God's character. He is a promise keeper. He is the foreshadower. He is the, like, the foreshadower of things to come. And he, he gives us that, that anticipation that, like, man, they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah in the same way that we're looking forward to the return of the Messiah. And so they're given this information to be able to lean into, to be able to look forward to that for us, the return, or for there, the coming, for them, the coming. 
God is not abandoning his covenant with Israel. He is fulfilling his promises and he's using that nation to scatter his grace to all the nations through them. And so that's critical. The other thing to consider is that the reason to use the story is that it's a story about the power of prayer to some extent as well. God hears the prayers of the faithful. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. James chapter 5, 16. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So in Luke, Jesus will teach us to be like this persistent widow who kept coming before the judge to get justice. Luke prefaces what that story is about with these words. Luke 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. God's a good God. This is demonstrated in the way that God goes out of his way to bless Zechariah and Elizabeth. He could have chosen anyone to be the parents of John who were in the priestly line, but they cho he chose Zechariah and Elizabeth. He chose to bless this faithful couple who had prayed for so long. And he tells them, you will have joy and gladness. Now, them having joy and gladness was not essential to John's mission. His parents experiencing joy and gladness had nothing to do with John's outcomes. This was something that God gave to them in his faithfulness to them. Prayer is the most powerful when we join our needs to God's divine purpose. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we need to, in our prayer times, we need to weave our needs into God's kingdom as we pray. We always got to keep the kingdom in mind. And so if we need finances, frame that within the context of the kingdom. God, I trust you to take care of my needs and to make me a blessing in your kingdom and to others. Like we need a kingdom vision there. If you're praying for health, then weave that into God's kingdom. God, I am asking for new health and strength so that I can use that strength to glorify your name and serve your people and praise your name. But the reality is that with, even with the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, we can have our prayers and we go to the Father and we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray. But the answer to the prayer should not be the thing that determines our faithfulness. If we look at how God is meeting the needs of Zechariah and Elizabeth, even as he is preparing to bring salvation into the world, what we find is that God's doing this with people who've been faithful with him, regardless of the answer to the prayer being in their direction. And this takes us to that fourth point, which is that faithfulness matters. God sees Zechariah and Elizabeth's faithfulness. God meets us, you could say, on the road to faithfulness. The vision came to Zechariah as he was doing what he was tasked to do. It would have been easy for this couple to give up along the way and just say, forget it, I'm done with all the disappointments. And yet what we find is that they remained faithful. Zechariah remained a priest. He remained faithful to the things that he was to do. He was part of his division. He fulfilled his responsibilities. And so it tells us that we are to be a people who keep praying. We keep serving. We keep witnessing. We keep giving. 
And I'm not telling you that the angel Gabriel is going to appear to you. But I am saying that the road of faithfulness is where our answers are going to be found. This is so, there's so much in this story that we could look at today. Talking about God's perfect timing. It actually reminds me of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, where he says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they didn't grow weary in doing good. And that proper time came, and it just came at a time that they just never expected. If we do the ordinary stuff with the eye on God's kingdom and glory, God will do the extraordinary stuff. And sometimes we feel like we need to produce the wow factor. Nah, that's God's department. Our part is faithfulness. So we keep connecting with worship. We keep connecting or start connecting with fellow brothers and sisters in faith. We keep giving, we keep serving, we keep forgiving, we keep doing all the one another's. And the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth shows us that, that when we consistently do the ordinary, God does the extraordinary. That's the important part here. And so what we find is, is that people who are fulfilling the roles that God has for them to fulfill are the backstory to the coming of the Messiah in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. What an incredible journey we have the opportunity we have the privilege of taking as we look through the Gospel of Luke. But let's remember this. As we consistently do the ordinary, God does the extraordinary. We are called into a place of faithfulness, just like Zechariah, just like Elizabeth. And that faithfulness, that faithfulness comes regardless of whether or not we get the answer we want from the Lord. Because we know that we will always get what we need from the Lord. So I invite you to carry on with us as we continue looking through the book of Luke together, learning about Jesus through the eyes of Luke. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time and I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you we have the privilege of looking into it. Lord, that you had Luke write this account of your story, your historical record of your life. And so I pray, Lord, that as we look into that, that we will grow in our affection for you, in our relationship with you, in our surrender to you, so that we might be your salt and light on the earth. In your name I pray. Amen.